Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, and we always do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Leslie Masolia, an addiction and chronic pain specialist to help understand options for treatment of pain besides opioids. So Chris, how have you seen the approach to pain and the use of opioids change during your own medical career? As yeah, great, as it is. yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, it's changed dramatically, like all of us have learned about this thing called the opioid crisis. And, and it's complicated. I mean, one of the things that's changed is, you know, like a lot of physicians, I've learned that I'm a big part of the problem. Uh, and that, you know, my ability to write prescriptions is really dangerous uh, and, you know, maybe well-meaning, but misinformed surgeons like me can really do a lot of harm because I distinctly remember in residency training and the early years after residency, you know, I wanted to be nice. I wanted to be helpful. I give a lot of pain medication after something like a vaginal birth or a cesarean section, thinking, well, they won't have to call me, they'll be happier, they'll know I want them to be comfortable. In reality, I was probably doing a lot of harm by that. Um, so it really has taken a change in mindset to realize that giving extra pain medicines is not necessarily being, you know, Mr. Nice Guy. Now, but you and I both do things to patients that make them hurt. And we do. You know, and we don't want people to hurt because we're doctors. We want to we want to solve problems. We don't want to create them. But but how do you approach a pain a, a patient who you know is going to have pain from the surgery that you do? Sure. How do you approach that? What's that conversation look like with you? Uh, it's interesting. When I was in my um, well after residency, running a dermatology clinic for the army, when I'd send patients away to the nearest uh, base where they could do most surgery, they told me to always send them with a prescription for hydrocodone, always. Mm -hmm. And I was taken aback even then in the, in the late 90s. It's like, really? Uh, so that really stunned me. But I, you know, probably for the first 10 or 15 years of doing most surgery in private practice, you know, there were certain patients, you know, flaps on the nose, scalp patients I would give like uh, 10 tablets of hydrocodone, which is, a, you know, pretty, a fairly strong, not the strongest of course, uh, opioid. Uh, but then after seeing the data on the epidemic, but even more importantly for me is seeing the data that when they did blinded studies on emergency room patients with acute pain that were given either alternating Tylenol and ibuprofen or uh, hydrocodone, there was no difference in the pain control. And once mm -hmm. I saw that, I, I think I prescribed an opioid once last year where I might have done it, you know, 60 to 100 times years before that. Hmm. And I'm not getting patients complaining of pain. So you give them the expectation. We have them alternate every three hours, you know, the Tylenol and ibuprofen. If they have pain, everybody ices 15 minutes, an hour until they go to bed the night of surgery. And that's where most of the pain is. And after that, it's pretty good. Yeah. So how has your prescribing habits changed? You know, we've changed, we give a lot fewer narcotics than we used to. And interestingly, no one is complaining about it, which yeah. it proves, I guess, we were giving way too many. Yes. They were sitting around unused. Now, years ago, I have a relative in my family who became opioid addicted. And I learned that, uh, and I, I can't wait to ask our guest about this, that many, many kids get opioid addicted from stealing leftover pills from a friend's house. You know, there's friends over playing in the house. They go to the parents' bathroom, open the medicine cabinet and steal some pills because it seems fun. And the next thing you know, they're opioid addicted. So I, I think I kind of had this realization that I was littering the community maybe with extra narcotics. Uh, and that's a powerful image when you feel that way. But I mean, I think like you, we give fewer medicines. Um, I think an interesting thing that's happened, you know, in our state of Indiana, now we're e-prescribing narcotics, which a big problem for me and a lot of surgeons, I think, in years past was you couldn't give anybody extra pills. So you better give them the right amount at the beginning because I can't call in narcotics by phone. Correct. 
So if you call me at three in the morning and say you're hurting and you're out of pain pills, I can't help. Well, now in Indiana, and I think in most states, I can. I can electronically send in two pain pills or three more pain pills. So I feel much more confident giving a, a much smaller number at the time of the surgery, knowing that if this patient gets in trouble, I can help without them going to the emergency room. I think it's important for listeners to know that opioid overdose deaths have resulted in the deaths of over half a million Americans in the last 20 years. This is a big deal. And while from 2017 to 18 or 18 to 19, for the first time in 20 years, opioid deaths went down, uh, they went back up again in 19 and uh, even more so in 20 with the pandemic. So this is still a big deal. Now, while prescription opioids used to be the main problem through about 2015, now it's synthetic opioids uh, and then heroin is pretty equal with the um, with the prescription ones. So this is still an ongoing thing, but I think uh, many of us have changed our prescribing habits oh, and we're gonna learn how to deal with pain, especially chronic pain from our guest. But I think we should get into our medical trivia question of the day so we can get into this uh, plethora, this super abundance of helpful information. So today's category is pain. What else would it be? The question, which will not be answered until the end of the show. You know how this works if you've been with us at all. What type of pain occurs when the body senses pain from an area that's no longer present, as when a patient has foot pain after the amputation of said foot? Hang around for the end of the show. It's going to be a doozy here on Dr. Doctor. We'll see you after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and on this exciting episode, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Leslie Masolia. She is, Tom, she's like so many of our guests, she makes me feel lazy. When I read, <laughs> when I read through not, all Chris. of the things that she's, done, that she's done, I feel I have an underachiever complex. <laughs> she's board certified in a lot of things, in family medicine. Uh, also, she's an addiction specialist. Um, she did her medical and her residency training way up at State University of New York, at Buffalo. She worked for a while in the Mayo Health System. Uh, she's provided inpatient hospitalist care for really complicated substance abuse patients, outpatient chemical dependency centers. Uh, she's also board certified in addiction medicine since 2012. She's even board certified in hospice and palliative care. We could have had her on one of our previous episodes uh, <laughs> talking about that. But her passion is helping patients find answers to their questions and their concerns about their health. And then empowering them to find solutions. And she always does it in a way that aligns them with their Catholic faith and values. So Leslie, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, it's great to be with you. Yeah, we are so happy to have you talking about such a relevant uh, topic. But I've gotta ask you from the beginning, how in the world did you pick a specialty that deals with chronic pain? <laughs> Yeah, great question. I think uh, the easiest answer is that it kind of chooses us, doesn't it? It really affects all areas of medicine anymore. <laughs> um, it really, from the start of family medicine, I mean, I'm your, I remember being with patients just in primary care and noticing how frequent and common a, a problem this is. And then later, when I got into addiction medicine, how many of the patients that I was treating had actually gotten addicted from being treated for their chronic pain conditions. Also the hospice and palliative arena, um, the, the issues around pain management and the hesitation I think by our colleagues to use opiates in that scenario because of the fears of addiction and abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, it just brought it all home to me that this is incredibly common and that there are little um, few tools, I think, that most of our colleagues are aware of that really are effective for treating both acute and chronic pain, honestly. And tonight, we're most interested in chronic pain because that's where a lot of the abuse of opioids has come. In fact, former FDA Commissioner David Kessler says that destigmatizing opioids for chronic pain was one of the greatest mistakes American medicine has ever made. So what is the difference between acute and chronic pain, Leslie? Yes, so or acute pain is We'll start there. It's simpler. It's really just the, the noxious stimulus of nerve tissues that are being injured. Uh, when we have an accident, when we experience some sort of threat to the body, the response of those tissues is irritation of the nerve cells. And so we get an acute, sudden, often sharp pain. 
The difference with that in chronic pain is that the, the pain itself lasts more than usually about three months or at least past the expected period of time that it would have taken for that original insult to have to have healed. The physiology of it is also found to be very different. We have a very different uh, nerve transmission pathways that are very complex and we won't really spend a whole lot of time on that because treatment and interventions are, are pretty much the same in a lot of these conditions. So just we'll just leave it at that, that the acute pain tells us something is, is threatening our body and to pull away from that. The chronic pain condition doesn't always have as clear of a source and it is following a lot different pathways so responds differently to the kinds of treatments we would use for uh, acute pain. So Leslie, relevant to uh, the discussion that Tom and I had before you joined us, we're both surgeons. We do surgery on patients. That's an acute pain. Exactly. Um, but it amazes me nowadays how often a patient will say she's not taking her pain medicines. She's miserable. I'll say why. And she'll say, well, I'm afraid I'll get addicted mm. because she watches the news also. Right. What, would you, what do you say to our listeners who who might need opioids for acute pain, who have that concern? Yes, thank you. That's a, a great question because that's really what we run into also in the palliative and, and hospice arena. These medications are legitimate and effective treatments for these pain conditions. They are effective. They are even safe. I'll even go that far. Uh, when used for an appropriate condition as they are prescribed and with you know the oversight of, of their physician, their prescriber. Yeah, good point. Thank you for that distinction. So yeah, we want all patients listening to know when you have surgery, you're supposed to hurt and you're supposed to take pain medicine. Exactly. Um, the other um, aspect I'll add to that is that addiction doesn't happen that quickly. There's a lot of confusion between addiction and even dependence. So say even after a very advanced involves surgery, you need the medication for a little longer than a few days. Hmm. We can develop physical dependence, which means as we try to stop the medicine, we may feel sick for a day or two. That's not addiction. Uh -huh. Addiction is a very uh, complex psychological problem that involves impulse control and, and very um, dysfunctional behaviors around trying to secure and use the medication for other than appropriate um, causes and, and needs. So that fear is, is a fairly gray line, I think, for, for a lot of people. So there's a lot of hesitation to take them appropriately for fear that it'll, it'll um, be uncontrollable at some point. And people don't know where that line is. So I think there's a lot of fear around that, that issue, both for us and our, and our colleagues, honestly. So Leslie, in your office, what are the most common reasons patients come to you with chronic pain? Yeah. Well, the the drawing line for most patients is it's starting to interfere in their daily life. And so they really need help to be able to maintain work and usual daily activities. The most common causes of this, is, as we probably are all pretty much aware, are really musculoskeletal, the low back pain, the neck pain, the hip pain, the knee arthritis. Those are the most common causes. They are the most common uh, sources of pain in society because of the rates of injuries that we have throughout our a normal life and the aging process, right? We're going to develop degenerative and arthritic problems through the course of our life, which are worsened and, and we'll say um, onset is earlier when we've had more car accidents or we've been involved in very um, contact sport type of activities. We see a lot of gymnasts and things like this. Um, but it's it's amazing how many accidents we have in the course of a normal life that we, we don't really pay attention to. But these conditions show up mid to later life um, and sometimes earlier, depending on how severe they were. So Leslie, when a patient comes to you where do you start with them to figure out what's wrong and what you want to do next? Yes. In other words, this might set up a patient for, how do I know I'm getting a good evaluation? Tell us what a good evaluation looks like. Yeah, great question. So obviously hearing the patient's story, letting them tell me what is the most troublesome area for them? What is most interfering with their life? How have they had it evaluated to that point? 
who have they seen for it? What treatments have they been given? What tests have they had? And what were the results that they're aware of of those tests? It can involve collecting medical records from those providers and those tests that they've already had so that nothing is duplicated, but we can put together all the pieces in a sense. It also involves my, my first visceral inspection because you can often tell a pain condition just by looking at how a person sits or carries themselves or moves in certain ways, holds themselves, and then I can ask more questions as I'm perceiving these things that can, can be clues to me about something that may be in the past that they haven't thought may be a relevant factor. So I can ask about car accidents or I can ask about sports in their youth or other accidents they may have experienced. Well, you know, Leslie, listening to you, I think uh, I want my chronic pain patients to see you. That's going to be <laughs> that's going to be difficult. Um, but but help our listeners understand if they're suffering from chronic pain, how do they begin to find a provider yes. that is is going to go about that in the right way? Right, right. It's a, another great question. I mean, all of us, like I say, have experience with patients with chronic with pain and chronic pain. I think it's important to start with whoever your primary provider is, just to make sure your overall health and the more obvious things that could be causing problems have been evaluated and hopefully ruled out. Um, from there, it kind of depends on the area of the body that's having pain. You know, I mean, a musculoskeletal issue, they're going to need a musculoskeletal professional. And so that would probably involve a physical therapist. I also recommend chiropractic evaluations. Their primary may have already done x-rays and things like that that can give clues as to what the actual source of that is. Or for abdominal and, and pelvic type pains, often either an OBGYN or a urologist has been involved, or I would recommend that be um, taken to those areas of specialization to make sure they are evaluated by somebody who's seen that type of pain more often and can give their input. You made a good case for why opioids are good in certain acute pain situations and even at the end of life. But what makes them a bad choice for the type of problems you've just been describing? Yes, it's it's been very interesting that we've learned over the last decade since we were encouraged about 10 years ago to use the opi to treat everybody with opiates. Right. Since that time, we've had a a great number of research studies and seeing in our practices that these are not effective for the chronic conditions. They're very effective, like you say, for the acute conditions, for end-of-life conditions. But as the as the physiology even of our pain syndrome transitions from acute to chronic, the response to opiates isn't the same. Unfortunately, people have gotten used to taking them, so their first reaction and, and instinct is to try to take more to get the same effect they used to get. And the same logic goes for the providers who think, well, Maybe they're tolerant now. Let's let's go higher and see if that helps. And inadvertently creating more of the dependence syndrome and for some who are prone an addiction. So we've realized because of that, you know, and with the emergence of the opiate um, crisis and the overdose death, that uh, the benefits are not nearly as great as the risks. And so we now have been been advised, as you quoted, that they are really not first line. Uh, there are so many more uh, effective and safer treatments out there that um, it really is not worth the risk to even to start there or and to discontinue them if they have been involved. Leslie, you know, I treat a lot of patients with endometriosis and they mm -hmm. have pain. Mm -hmm. And I find myself saying a lot, you know, the pain is just the symptom. It's not the disease. Mm. But in listening to you, I'll bet a lot of your patients, the pain is the disease, isn't mm -hmm. it? Exactly. But that's a big distinction. I mean, yes. that must be incredibly challenging when you can't put your finger on some organic pathology as a cause of the pain. But yet you're trying to treat the pain at the same time. Yes, yes. Um, and it's a huge frustration for us as providers, you know, and, and unfortunately our patients run into this this predicament because we want to identify. We've been trained how to isolate and to focus and just, you know, pinpoint and figure it out so that we have the recipe really for how to now we how do we address this, how do we treat it or cure it. That's unfortunately not the case with chronic pain. There are so many factors that that play into and contribute to the development of a chronic pain syndrome that even even if you found the original source, that's not going to be the way to resolve it. You need all these other modalities. So as we were saying, starting with 
primary care, then considering, you know, a specialty evaluation for whatever organ system is involved and could have been part of this, this development of the syndrome. But then you're also going to want to have, as I mentioned, other modalities. You're going to want um, to have some physical exercise in there. You're going to want to have dietary components to your treatments. You're going to want to make sure mental health-wise you've been, you've been adequately assessed and treated for either any previous conditions you had that are contributing or a lot of folks even develop depression, anxiety conditions from having chronic pain. So all these so things would be part this of- This is the- a great segue into the many different modalities. And let's talk yes. about some of them. First of yes. all, we still have drugs. Where yes. do you use drugs that are not opioids? Exactly. Yes, there they are. There are effective treatments, even with over-the-counter medications. I find that really the the anti-inflammatory medications like your ibuprofen, Motrin, Naproxen, they can be very helpful. Acetaminophen or Tylenol, also as as uh, directed, can be very helpful. Um, as you mentioned in in your intro, alternating the two is incredibly helpful for many people. And in my own experience, even having treated folks with these, most people just don't want to take that many pills so they don't keep up the routine, you know? But it was helping. It was actually helping. And and keeping in mind, none of these treatments are going to be complete and and sufficient by themselves. So we're really just looking for what pieces are going to help so that putting them all together I am functional. I'm not, this pain isn't keeping me from doing what I want to do, even though it's probably not going to be completely resolved. But there's also other types of medicines that can help with pain, especially focusing on the nerves. Like, you know, there's um, Neurontin, Gabapentin, Lyrica, Mm -hmm. uh, even antidepressants for pain. Where does that fit in? True, true. So the, the antidepressants, if someone does have an underlying mood disorder, like anxiety or depression, treating that with an antidepressant can help the person's tolerance of pain. I really haven't seen a whole lot of pain relief from patients I've treated who've been put on the medication just for pain. So by itself, I don't see that it's been as effective as we would like. Also, the gabapentin or even the, the pregabalin, the Lyrica medications, these are uh, FDA approved for chronic pain syndromes. So we've I think we've shifted to them as providers because they're non-opiates, but they still are not as effective, I'll say, as sure. what I've seen with yes. other, other modalities, and they do pose risks. The Lyrica itself can have a dependence in a withdrawal syndrome, and a lot of these drugs are misused with other illicit drugs, and so, um, how do I want to say it, they become part of the black market, so hmm. there's been another uh, motivation, we'll say, for patients to seek them, even though they're not getting, they'll tell you they're not getting a lot of pain sure. relief, that's why they're asking for more and higher doses. Right. You know, Leslie, we love to torture people with our vocabulary in medicine. Um, but you know, I've heard you say several times chronic pain syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I wonder for our listeners, if you could try to make a distinction between, you know, my neck is hurting again, as opposed to a chronic pain syndrome. Hmm. Good point. Well, honestly, people with chronic pain have a recurrence of pain in an area. So the fact that they don't have a specific disorder that their providers have identified and can be treated very discreetly and resolved that leads them to have this problem again and again and again without resolution, mm-hmm. it becomes a chronic pain syndrome. So mm-hmm. there's a cat, it becomes the full category because it can affect really almost any part of the body that has this recurrent problem uh, despite treatment interventions, and despite not having a specific cause that could be identified and, and, and treated completely. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's move on to an area that we, speaking of torturing people, we torture people also by talking about the benefits of exercise, and chronic pain is no different. Yeah. Yes, if you would just exercise, everything would be fine. <laughs> I used to joke with my patients in primary care, it didn't matter their question, my, my answer was always going to include exercise. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yes, we all know that when we are physically fit, we feel better. We, we keep our muscles conditioned. We keep our circulation brisk. We actually have a better hormonal balance in our bodies. We sleep better. Our moods are better. Uh, it's no different for chronic pain syndromes. A lot of folks, you know, it's kind of a contributor as well as a result. They, for whatever reason, become less physically active. They become stiff, sore. They get weaker in areas that contributes to their pain. And they'll say, I can't exercise because I hurt. But at the same time, if they don't exercise, they're going to hurt more. And as we exercise, 
exercise, you know, we do feel better over time. We, we do feel less sore, less stiff. We have better energy. So it's one of these things we have to start very, very gently, you know, just walking. I, I caution people against doing anything super aggressive or using weights or jogging or anything like that. Walking really is, is the only exercise that has proven benefit in any of the studies, even for the cardiovascular and other, you know, diabetic effects, things like that improvement. So being gentle on yourself, but getting something at least 30 minutes, they say five days a week. So Leslie, what's the role for what some people might describe as uh, getting in touch with their bodies or rather thinking their way through uh, their chronic pain? Mm -hmm. What is the role for that approach uh, in treating yes. this condition? Very, very important that we become more attentive really to what we're feeling in our bodies. As I was mentioning about exercise, it's important that we're paying attention to what is causing more discomfort and what may be relieving our, our discomfort. So it's really what I like to call listening to the wisdom of our bodies, that when I'm starting to have discomfort or pain, I need to back off. I need to reduce intensity or maybe take a break, um, as well as noticing, gosh, you know, right now I'm not feeling so much pain. What am I doing or not doing that I can keep track of so that I know I can do this in the future to relieve when I may be having a pain flare? Excellent. And, and how do how would patients do that during the day? Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, pain is your body telling you there's something wrong. Yes. And, but sometimes there's soreness, like, you know, exercising. Oh, there's a, a good kind of soreness. So how does somebody know the difference between the good and the bad? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. I think it's it's even like our asthmatics, where we have to know what our baseline is to know where things are going a little out of control. Paying attention, how do I feel right now? Maybe we just get in the habit of maybe once, twice, three times a day, taking a pause and just thinking, where in my body do I feel pain, and where in my body do I not feel pain? It can help us tune in so that we are recognizing it when it's happening. Do you ever have patients keep a diary of this from day to day so that they can see over a long period of time they're getting better? Uh, you know, it, that can be helpful. I guess I, I don't usually recommend that because I don't really want them to focus on it, to be honest with you. Like you ah. said, when it's not there, we're we're living life. <laughs> that's right. the goal is eventually they're not, they're not noticing pain. It, it, it's an approach like... with chronic itch patients. That's why I bring ah, it up. Gotcha. Which, okay. which has been demonstrated to be beneficial. Oh, well, okay. this is a good point to take uh, the break with the first half of the show, but we'll be back with more practical information on dealing with chronic pain here at Dr. Doctor in just a moment. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And we're talking about something that's really important, chronic pain. So Leslie, we talked a little bit about exercise uh, and being in tune with our bodies. Uh, I've got to ask you, I'm always confused. Do I put ice on it? Do I put heat on it? Um, do I ice at the beginning or heat at the beginning? Or uh, is, a, is the hot rice bag for my neck, is that good? <laughs> Help us understand some of these modalities and what their role is. Yes, I know. We've, we've contributed to that confusion because I think different providers do have different perspectives on this. My observation and perspective, however, is that ice is always uh, preferable and more effective than heat. Patients will tell me, you know, the heat helps me relax and it feels so good. However, they also will add the stories where they fell asleep on a hot pad, hot pad and woke up in the middle of the night with excruciating pain and then sciatica down their leg. So let me explain the mechanism of this. So when we put heat on something, it causes dilation of the blood vessels in the tissue. We know that because it turns red, it gets swollen, it might even help, you know, um, pulsate a bit as we feel the blood flow in the tissue. This creates congestion of fluids in that tissue. And those poor little nerves in there are some of those tissues that get, get scrunched. When we put ice on something, it constricts the vessels. It pulls the fluid from the tissues, leaving more room for your nerves, less irritation of those nerves. So it actually increases the capacity of the tissues to have the nerves freely functioning in them without agitation and mm. irritation. So nine times out of 10, ice is going to be faster on, a, on an area that hurts. It's going to be preventive. It'll increase the, the the space in that tissue for the nerve to function and it lasts longer actually for pain relief than a lot of the other modalities so i recommend daily for folks with chronic pain conditions if not more than once a day for those that are really severe on the area that bothers them well that's a big takeaway now moving to a different topic tom and i Wait, had before that i've got a question about the ice specifics mm -hmm. how long mm. what form 
Mm. And then what do you do right after? Should you stretch or strengthen right after? Mm-mm. So um, almost doesn't matter. <laughs> Forgive me for that. <laughs> Oh, good. That's my but favorite answer. Whether you've got a whether you got your rice bag, whether you've got your frozen <laughs> peas, whether you bought something fancy that's got elastic around it, whether you sit on it on the couch or you stand it, whatever. As long as it's I would say fifteen minutes minimum. Mm. And then no, no I've had some physical therapists tell me and then stretch right after that. Mm-mm. No, no, nope. no. <laughs> not in my experience. Just the ice difference. in itself. No, not at all. Just live your life. And then how many times probably. a day? Is there I an optimum? Think, uh, it depends. Like I say, uh, most of the time at the end of the day for sure. So to make sure you get a decent night's sleep the end ah. of the day, you want to cool off the hot spots, the back of the neck, the low back, maybe your knees, hips, whatever your primary pain area is. So whatever your evening relaxation activity is, do it with ice on. Chris, your excellent question that I so rudely interrupted. <laughs> no, that was a good one. I was writing yeah. as fast as I can because I think I've been doing it all wrong. Um, <laughs> means I've been telling my patients to do it all wrong. Oh, no. So that's, that's really, or if that's they really have helpful. to use heat. So here's the other piece. So some of them will say, but I need the heat. You say, as long as you follow it with ice because uh, it's going to increase congestion. Maybe you'll relax, but make sure you get ice on there because otherwise you're going to pay oh, for interesting. it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, we've referenced movement and uh, some physical therapy and exercise. I I was going to say, Tom and I have had some great specialists on. We've had some pretty cool chiropractors on our show before. Oh, yes. That can be a controversial topic among we physicians. Um, Help us understand what is the role for chiropractic manipulation and treating chronic pain syndromes? It is. uh, I've learned that it is huge. I we are not trained in a lot of what they learn in, in chiropractic schools, allopath or osteopathic medicine. Um, so what I've learned, because I've worked in a, a multidisciplinary pain clinic from the chiropractic uh, science, is that you know our nerves are also dependent on the alignment of our bones and our muscles. When the bones are out of alignment or they get out of place, they're going to put tension on the tissues that are attached to them muscles, mm-hmm. you know, joint, the cartilage, the ligaments, tendons, all of those have nerve in them. So when the bones are out of place, the nerves are being irritated. They're being pulled on, they're strained, they're pinched. You know, people talk about these pinched nerve syndromes. That's what's going on. When the chiropractic professional can get you back in alignment, do their evaluation, find the areas that are out of alignment, and then do the adjustment to get them back in alignment, the strain comes off those nerves. It also releases the nerves ability to help heal because they're not able to message normally when they're strained and pinched. And so it's crucial for healing. It's then also crucial to be able to go do the exercises that either the chiropractor or a physical therapist might give you to strengthen the areas and help keep the alignment as it, as it should be as normal anatomy to facilitate healing, strengthening and recovery. So there's overlap between chiropractic and physical therapy, isn't there? Yes, yes, there is. And, and, you know, chiropractors have training in the physical therapy pieces as well as a lot of physical therapists have training in the chiropractic pieces. Yeah, they're doing a lot more hands-on these yes. days. And I personally have benefited from a combination of seeing the both. So you're right. In medical school, we were taught that chiropractors were good for treating one syndrome, facet syndrome. And I was like, really? <laughs> but that was from the orthopedic surgeons who I, I quickly learned you know, as much as they know, there's so much that they aren't taught, especially the soft tissue part of the musculoskeletal system. Exactly. And and brings us back to the point that the treatment of chronic pain is very multimodal. We need all these different disciplines to get yes. all these different sources, mm-hmm. both of the injury, but also of healing and recovery and rehabilitation. Well, and then I'm guessing we would hold up the outcome as the patient's subjective report of feeling better. Exactly. Uh, to, not to us some necessarily. degree. Yeah. To some degree. But I'll tell you, after working with the chiropractors and seeing the patients come in time and again, I learned to be able to see even the way they held themselves, their mm. their um, gait, their stance, how they sat and stood, it all improved, even if they weren't aware. So it was very yes. helpful to hear their perspective, but then to also give them the feedback to say, gosh, you know, when I first mm. met you, you know, you looked like this and you act like, and they said, gosh, I guess you're right. <laughs> okay. It's amazing how we don't know how to walk correctly, sit correctly, stand correctly, bend right. or kneel down to get things. And, and so we stress our bodies. It's just incredible. 
Yeah, so it's important to learn how to do these things correctly from those specialists to help us point out the areas that we may not, we don't even notice we're not doing it correctly. So Leslie, we've talked about several modalities. Let's talk about another one, and that would be um, the more surgical or invasive things mm -hmm. that listeners may hear about when it comes uh, to chronic pain. Walk us through some of those. Sure. So it, most patients, honestly, are because this is really the arena we're <clears throat> excuse me we're most familiar with. When you go to your primary, they're going to want you to see either an orthopedist. Some of them will send you to physical therapy. Um, but most of them are thinking there's something that needs to be treated by an intervention. That's just how we're trained is things, what do we do next? What is the intervention that we're to do next? So as the tool in the tool belt, so to speak, that's what we see recommended. We see efforts to reduce inflammation with uh, an injection, right? A steroid injection into the area that's inflamed. We see recommendations for a surgical procedure that can remove the pressure, you know, open the space, I guess, is the common, most common way I see it described, to try to open the space around whatever area they recognize a nerve as being pinched or impinged. Unfortunately, um, the other modalities haven't, uh, have often not been tried because they're, they're really not aware that these are effective. And so where maybe an alignment, you know, realignment with chiropractic and then physical therapy and ICE could have opened that space, a surgical procedure will go in there and do what it can do to remove tissue. However, the unintended result of that is going to be scar tissue. And do you so, have any statistics on what percentage of chronic low back pain patients can be helped without surgery? Okay, without surgery, the vast majority. I'm sorry, I don't have specific numbers, but we do have you know studies that come out that show how many mm -hmm. failed back surgeries. We actually have a oh. syndrome now, the failed back <laughs> surgical Very syndrome. common, yes. Very common. So we know that it's not helping. And, and even the patients, as they come out of them, they'll say maybe a day or two they felt better, but maybe that was the anesthesia around the procedure. And it was shortly within weeks or months that they were back and, and sometimes often, unfortunately, worse um, because of, again, the complications that happen with this, the scar tissue, the uh, deconditioning that occurs during that period of debility um, and rehabilitation. So um, it's, it's unfortunately true that most patients who go into these, other than for very acute syndromes, there are, you know, acute disc ruptures, there are acute impingement syndromes, you know, neurologic compromise where you're seeing even a neurosurgeon to get in there and acutely free up an area that's in jeopardy. Outside of that, I, you know, I think our colleagues wanted help and this was the way they were trained and what sure. they feel they can offer and they're hopeful for the best, but honestly, after the, the procedure and the, the incisions are healed up, they no longer manage the patient. The patient is back to primary care. It's back to these other providers and saying, now what do I do? It didn't fix it. And so, yeah, uh, trying to avoid adding to the problem, I think, surgically by trying these other modalities and saving that as a last resort. What do you think is the safety and efficacy of both steroid injections, because a lot of patients fear them. They hear, you know, steroid or cortisone. Yeah. And then there's also the injections of different compounds that can maybe thicken the discs between mm -hmm. our vertebrae. You could comment right. on that also. Right. Again, they're, they're somewhat temporizing measures, meaning they can get some temporary relief uh, for very acute symptoms. However, it's not going to fix the long-term condition, because keep in mind, we're talking about chronic pain conditions. So we're likely going to be seeing degenerative changes, which is wear and tear and scar tissue build up over time. We're going to be seeing arthritis pain, which we know even after a joint replacement does not go away. <laughs> we can't take out arthritis. We can make the joint more stable and more and stronger, more mobile. But the patient says, why do I still have pain? Because <laughs> they misunderstand yes. that replacing the joint doesn't mean taking out the pain factors. So unfortunately, you know, they have their their purpose. However, they're still going to find they need these other modalities. So it's important well, to be doing them up front to see what, how much of that can be resolved right. with these non-invasive modalities before having to resort to, to the surgical interventions. That come with their own unique set of, uh, of challenges, as you pointed exactly. out. Exactly. Now, we've talked about exercise, the thing we're all afraid to mention. Let's go to the other one that we're afraid to mention, and that <laughs> is diet. Uh, what, what, if any, role does diet and food play yes. in managing chronic pain? Yes. I, you know, folks try all kinds of supplements and there, there's all these new trendy diets, whether it's vegan or non-GMO or you name it. Uh, I've never seen or heard of patients reporting improvement in pain 
or seen studies that show improvement in pain with particular dietary habits. However, weight management is the key piece of this. If we become overweight, we definitely don't feel as good. We're groggy, we're, you know, a little logy, we ache a little more, we're stiff. So really that's the component because then when we lose a little bit of weight, almost every few pounds, boy, we can tell the difference. We can feel better. We feel more vital. We feel more energetic. We have less pain. And we've even now discovered there's even a, a biochemical reason for a lot of this that fat cells contain inflammation. Mm. We didn't know about this so much in, you know, in our, our circles, but again, the chiropractors and the, the osteopathic providers have known about the effects of inflammation on pain syndromes and even in um, overweight and obesity. What we've seen now is that for me, I, again, my, my uh, realization of this came when we started seeing non-alcoholic fatty liver conditions developing cirrhosis, which is scarring, indicating that the fat tissue alone was creating some sort of an irritant through all that uh, that led to the scar tissue, the scarring down of the liver that we call cirrhosis. So we know that there is more inflammation in the body as it gains weight. And and people will usually tell you, yeah, I, I definitely don't feel as good as I've gained weight and I feel better when I lose weight. So it's important to, to have a healthy healthy overall weight for our, for our size, which is your body mass index. Leslie, on this show, we like to talk about how the Catholic faith of physicians influences their practice of medicine because we, we don't live our lives in silos. So how does it affect your approach to chronic pain patients? Yes, this has been an important component because as we've recognized, chronic pain means it's been there a long time. And as we know from the studies, chronic pain patients will likely continue to have pain, even despite all these different interventions we're talking about. We're looking at things that can temporize so that we can live our lives. And at the spiritual side of this, it really is about, you know, a lot of folks say, why God would you allow these things to happen to me? Why would I have to suffer like this? Why do I, am I in so much pain? And as a believer, I've always, I've always held to our truth of the faith that we are never given anything that God hasn't allowed, first of all, that he hasn't also given us the grace to cope with, and, and even beyond that, that this is somehow intended for us to become holier people and closer to God. His goal is always us coming closer to him, and he's willing to allow whatever in our lives will be the pathway to that because that is the most important aspect of our lives is drawing closer to God, focusing on strengthening that throughout our lives, drawing other people in through our witness to that, and then living with him in, for all eternity. So I like to look at really any hardship, and chronic pain certainly is one of those that gives us either the opportunity to to choose, right, like we do in anything else. Am I going to allow this to depress me and cause me to despair and to, to lose my faith, or is it going to allow me to dig deeper? Is it going to be the means by which I reach to God in faith and say, I know you're an all good, all loving God. I know I'm your child. You are so great and so good. You would never allow anything to your beloved child that wasn't meant for my good and your glory. Please give me the grace to, to bear this burden, to unite it to the sufferings of Christ so that it has value, infinite value, both for my holiness, for the growing the kingdom, and show me how you will for me to manage this. How can I be a witness to your goodness through this burden? And similar to Christ on the cross, what looked like the greatest humiliation and devastation was actually the greatest glory as he trusted in God and he was obedient and even to death and suffering to a degree we'll never even be able to, to fathom. So I, I try to also help patients recognize the ways that it may be impairing them from what they feel they're calling is in their life because Satan also wants mm. to use it to keep us from taking the next steps toward whatever it is that God is calling us to and to be able to, to be watching for that. It's going to be our Achilles heel. So what is the piece that this is keeping me from that I know in my heart God is calling me to so that we can, again, just dig deeper and say, Lord, I want to do your will. Give me the strength. Help me see it. Help me defeat it. Help me to proceed through it so that I, I am victorious. You are victorious through me. And I don't allow this thing to become the obstacle to accomplishing whatever it is I was created to do and be. The greatest example I, I can think of this is, is Mother Angelica 
from you mm. know our station here. She yes. had a horrible problem with chronic low back pain since she was actually very young, mm. and her her biography describes through you know I was able to listen to the the recording of her biography with Raymond Arroyo, the incredible suffering that it caused her, even to the point that she didn't think she could enter the convent because she had so much pain when she would kneel to pray. Mm. And that that was going to be a requirement of her novitiate. And she she still dug in. I mean, she sought the help that she could get. It wasn't like she was a martyr about it. She went to doctors. She did the treatment she was given, but she still had pain throughout her whole life. But she still came back to say, Lord, I hear your call in my life, and I want to do what is your will, even though I'm having pain. Give me the grace. Give me the resources. Help me have the tools so that I can can be successful in that, that I can persevere, that I can not doubt and not allow this to keep me from the great things that, that he hadn't clearly had in store for her. And she was incredibly successful, as we know. <laughs> yeah, certainly no no question about that. I mean, mm-hmm. Leslie, you've given us some really amazing information, and I know our listeners are thirsty to know more. Mm-hmm. How do they begin uh, a search to learn and know more about chronic pain and mm-hmm. good chronic pain uh, healthcare providers like you, where do you direct them to begin that kind of a journey? Yeah, well, and like we've been talking about, really starting with primary care just to rule out the most severe and obvious physical medical conditions. Mm. Um, I'm also available through mycatholicdoctor.com, which is a has become a, a wonderful resource across the country of uh, Catholic providers of all different specialties. And uh, to your point earlier, even if you the doctor that you want to see isn't licensed in your state, you can consult with a doctor who is, and that doctor can consult with anybody else on the platform to be able to obtain those services for the patient. So really anywhere, um, even my my services could be accessed through a provider in that state of that patient. Um, and I'm glad to do those assessments. And it, it often really just involves the initial assessment to get a, a general idea of the source of pain, the, the treatments that have already happened, the, the tests, the results, what's been successful or not, to sort of outline what is the overall plan. And from there, just to help them connect within their region or within their insurance plan with the providers who then would help them with those next steps. Well, if there are listeners who think it doesn't matter if my chronic pain doctor is Catholic, uh, I'll bet they feel differently after listening to you. Oh, good. I hope so. I hope so. It is important. Leslie, in the last 30 seconds, what's the last bit of wisdom you'd like to leave with listeners? Mm. Well, first of all, don't lose hope. Keep searching and know that God is with you in this. Continue to turn to him. Turn to his mother, who also suffered greatly. Turn to your guardian angel. Know that God has a plan for you, and even that includes this this hardship and this burden. And just pray for the wisdom to be able to persevere, the strength and the grace, so that he can reveal that to you. He can make you stronger and that you can be healed to the degree that he will will for the purposes that he has in mind for you and then be a witness to others. The Dr. Last- Leslie Masolia, thank you so much for your time here on Dr. Doctor. and God bless you and your good work. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We hope that you've been enjoying this episode on chronic pain syndrome, and we even more hope that you enjoy the answer to this episode's trivia question, and that is what type of pain occurs when the body senses pain from an area that no longer exists? For example, if a patient has their arm uh, amputated and they still feel pain in their arm. Take it away, Tom. Yeah, this is called phantom pain or phantom limb pain. Uh, it's a real thing. And it's like, you know, when you have pain, normally you can put your hand on that part of your body or rub it or put ice on it. You can't do that anymore because the part just isn't there. It's it's bizarre. But what happens is uh, our brains map a certain area of the body in a certain area of the brain that corresponds with it. And even though that limb is gone, that part of the brain is still mapped and it takes a while. We are, to by rewire. any definition, complicated creations. <laughs> And and the way that we sense our environment, uh, sometimes through pain, is very complicated, isn't it? Um, It it is. And that's why sometimes, uh, as Leslie and you brought out, you can have a chronic pain syndrome where 
the primary disease is yeah, the it pain stops being itself. the symptom and it starts being the disease. You know, something I couldn't help but think about when she was talking and her beautiful answer to why being Catholic matters. I sometimes see chronic pain patients and I look at them and I look at their face and I listen to them talk and I think, you know, it's really your soul is what's hurting. You know, you're you're sort of miserable <laughs> in your existence. Or as an attending in medical school of mine used to say, you're enjoying your state of poor health too much. Um, but, but, you know, listening mm. to her talk, you know, I felt better. And uh, she had such a beautiful way to describe um, how to manage that pain uh, from a faith-based perspective. Well, Chris, we got about 75 seconds to nail those top yes, I know three listeners are dying takeaways. You know, the first one, and, and you've already alluded to it, <laughs> with chronic pain syndrome, finding the source of the pain may not solve the problem. That's counterintuitive, but really important. Uh, this other one that we've had with other uh, specialists on the show, the concept that motion is lotion for the body. So just get up and start moving. Move more and hurt less. And I know your favorite one is that ice is better than heat. <laughs> uh, so when something hurts, put ice on it. And then a bonus takeaway for the top three, which is actually the fourth, fat cells make you grumpy. So lose some of them and you'll feel better. <laughs> Those are great takeaways in record time. Yes, ice ice is helpful. All my patients do it every night after surgery, 15 minutes an hour till they go to bed. They think I'm crazy, but that's okay. So Chris, we, you and I, thank our listeners for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please, listeners, share the good news of Dr. Doctor, if you think it is such, with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or even on the radio while it's airing. And do us a favor and rate our show on your favorite podcast app. It'll help other people find us. Uh, and check out our website, drdoctor.org. You can check out all of our older episodes, read about some of our guests, and find all kinds of other cool things. And be sure, of course, to tune in for your next week's appointment with Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.